Yes. And I, and I love that you have put in jokes for multiple levels mm. of there's like the deep Shakespeare cuts. Um, there's the, if people don't get the R-Town joke right before the Hamilton joke. <laughs> right. Some people get the R-Town joke. More people get the Hamilton joke. Maybe more people get the Danny K. There's just multiple levels of, if, if you don't know the inside joke, I don't think your experience will be diminished. But right. if you do know it, it will be enhanced. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, and now in its 15th year, number 747, Hamlet's Prequel Adventure. This week is the annual conference of the Shakespeare Association of America, which, like everything else, is being held virtually. SAA, or SA, is not to be confused with STA, STA, the Shakespeare Theatre Association conference, which I've attended for several years. SA is the largely academic conference I'm attending for the first time. I'm very excited about it, and I'm participating in a seminar about Shakespearean biofiction on the stage and screen, and focusing on William Shakespeare. Shakespeare's long-lost first play, Abridged, but it seemed like the perfect time to share this conversation about Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, with director Kate Pitt, who also served as the dramaturg for Hamlet's Big Adventure, and to put it in scholarly terms, helped us define and articulate the intertextual conversation with Shakespeare's classic tragedy. We talked about Hamlet's Big Adventure's biofictional elements, but first, Kate and I talked about how the script came to be in the first place. Early on when we were talking about doing this, you, were, you seemed genuinely enthusiastic about this notion of examining the characters of Hamlet and Ophelia before the events of Hamlet's play. Can you tell me why you were? Well, I think as as you've said on previous podcasts, you were surprised by the fact that no one seems to have done this in play form. Mm. That it seems a rather obvious thing to do. There's a there's a lot of characters that we know were in the past, like Yorick, like where's Ophelia's mother. Um, so the fact that it hadn't been done was kind of surprising. Um, I'd read uh, Gertrude and Claudius, the Updike right. novel, which sort of takes you into the backstory, um, and I don't love it. I so I was really intrigued to hear your guys' take. Thank you. I didn't love it either. I couldn't read it. Yeah. I, I mean, he goes he goes back into the source material, um, which is kind of academically interesting, but I think dramatically it's not all that great or interesting. Or what I what I want from a Hamlet prequel is to give me insight into the play. And I don't think I got that. And that's kind of the only prequel that I knew of. Yeah. Um, so I was really excited to see what you guys were going to do. Well, as were we. Um, and, 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 you know, we are one of the inciting ideas of this, and it's kind of now our marketing thing is like, what would Tom, you know, the idea was, what would it be like if Tom Stoppard wrote Muppet Babies? And Which I, is the best tagline. Thank you. Um, but I thought, uh, uh, I thought honestly that when we first wrote it, when we first sat down, I thought the characters would be younger than they have ended up being. Um, because right now in the script, we sort of take you right up to, it feels like only hours before the events of Hamlet the tragedy begin. Um, but that leads to an interesting question and a controversial one, which is, in your experience, how old is Hamlet? 
<laughs> right? Right. Um, <laughs> is is he fat? Is he thirty? Is he not? Um, right. Yeah, is- and I love that you guys nod to that in the script. Um, that there's, you know, in the in jokes for the Shakespeare nerds, uh, trying to figure out how old he is. I, uh, I don't know. I've seen Young Hamlets. I've seen Old Hamlets. I feel like the Old Hamlets in general have worked better. Mm-hmm. I think because they're more. This is a. I think this is a personal preference. Um, but they're more intellectual and they think more. And there's something about the impulsivity of youth, um, where. Hamlet is a thinker. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the most confusing Hamlet I've ever seen was Jude Law, mm. who did it when he was older. But when he said, no more like my father than I to Hercules, it was very confusing because Jude Law looks like a blonde demigod. Um, <laughs> he looks like Hercules. And there was no doubt that he was going to kill Claudius. It was just a question of when. And that wasn't a very interesting play to watch. Right. Whereas like a nerdy, older, perpetual grad student um, who's kind of like nerdy and weedy and is in his books and reading his juvenile and wouldn't ever imagine killing someone. Watching that person get to a point where they can murder, I think is really interesting. Uh, and I've tended to see that in older Hamlets rather than younger impulsive ones. Yeah, and it's not just that he th- he thinks and is famously indecisive. Um, it's that he agonizes over... Yes. This, these decisions. So there's a there's a dram- there's a dramatic impulse behind that. One can make it active, and he plots and he plans, and you know one can get lost in the weeds with Hamlet, where he just philosophizes, and that's the danger of every Shakespeare play, not just Hamlet. Absolutely, and that he he needs double confirmation on everything. Like even when he does the play and he's watching Claudius, he makes sure that Horatio is also watching. And he's like, "Did you see that? Am I am I crazy?" Um, There's a wonderful Kate Beaton comic, um, which is like four panels of what if Hamlet and Othello switched plays, and in each of them, the play would be thirty seconds. Yeah, (laughs) Othello would stab Claudius immediately. Hamlet would think about what Iago's saying and be like, "You absolute liar." Yeah. Well, and that and so that was fun for us uh, to come up with ways in Hamlet's Big Adventure that explain, well, how did Hamlet become so philosophical? How did he become so quote unquote indecisive? You know, how where did he learn his all his encyclopedic knowledge of theater? Yes. Um yeah, and and when you guys were thinking about the sequel, um, knowing that you wanted it to dovetail into the end of Hamlet, the choices that you've made in terms of are the characters exactly the way we see them or are they different? And then the course of the play is figuring out how they got that way. Um, like Polonius, as we know in Hamlet, being very loquacious. Right, yes. <laughs> was he always like that? Right. Um, and I love that you guys have, have examined those questions. Well, and, and Ophelia, too, is quote-unquote crazy you know, whatever that means. And that's very reductive. I mean, all of these descriptions of all of these characters are incredibly reductive. Um, but, but there is an element to Ophelia that lends herself to, to madness. Not everybody, you know, Juliet didn't go mad through thwarted love. She, just, she killed herself, but that was a different thing. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. <clears throat> part of it was explaining, part of it was portraying Ophelia. Part of it 
part of it is portraying Ophelia in a way that suggests she is um, in extremis a lot. The things she feels, she feels a thousand percent. Yes, and that and that that goes for joy as well as sorrow. Yes, I mean what part of the conversations we had about Ophelia, which I thought was really interesting, um, and you pointed me towards that Harriet Walter interview where she's talking about Ophelia and talking about how she feels that Ophelia needs to have some sort of essential fragility at the beginning Mm -hmm. um, to make her descent into madness make sense. Um, But I'm not sure I agree with, but there's something really interesting about a character who just feels everything really hard. Yeah. So when she's happy, she's just, she's a really intense person. So when the event that happens happens to be incredibly traumatic and awful, that pushes her over the edge um, in one direction. But there's also the possibility of like extreme joy in her life. Um, That's interesting. That's interesting. I don't, I don't think I agree with that notion of Ophelia needing to be fragile either. Certainly we don't play her as fragile. I mean, we make the other comic choice, which is which is that she's a, you know, per, per a, a hormonal teen eternally frustrated with her mother embarrassing her all the time. Yes, and yes, to play her more like Juliet, who's an incredibly strong character, and you know, when she's betrayed by her family, when she like rejects the nurse, she rejects her mother, she does her own thing, yeah. and she's not fragile. And I think my frustration with so many Ophelias is that sort of looping her in the Elias of Shakespeare's characters, the Cordelias, the Ophelias, these sort of, you know, Cordelia is not that weak because she leads an army. But there's a lot of sort of women who I've seen often portrayed um, as like weak, wilting, in flowy, pretty white dresses in flowers going crazy. Um, And that's not all that interesting. I mean, I wish I could have seen like Glenda Jackson doing Ophelia, as far as I know, is one of the first women who was like, what if she's not, you know, an ingenue from the beginning? What if she's got some spine and it's the intensity of her experiences that drives her mad, that what she goes through would drive anyone crazy. She doesn't have to be weak at the beginning. What I appreciate is that you didn't make Ophelia weak. Yeah. That at the beginning, if you're trying to get her to the beginning of Hamlet, the first time we, well, the first time we see her, she's silent. She's in the scene with Claudius and Gertrude, but she doesn't say anything. Um, And then we see her agreeing to what her, well, we see her with her brother where she's not, I mean, she listens to him, but there's, there's also a lovely, when, when he tells her to stay away from Hamlet and she has that wonderful line of is in my memory locked and yourself shall keep the key of it. I remember the first time I read it being like that, that could be interpreted as kind of a passive aggressive. I'm not, going to listen to you because if it's locked in her head and he has the key it's not going to be used um so she listens to him but i think there's potentially a way to play her where she's not just going yeah dad okay i'll just or brother i'll do whatever you say even though she eventually does i think there's a way to play her with more agency at the beginning and she agrees to do what she does because she loves her dad and she wants to do what he wants her to do, um, but that she doesn't have to be a wilting violet um, and then go out with literal violets at the end. She can she can be a more interesting character than that. And addressing that question of we hear what other people think of their relationship. Polonius and Laertes both tell her to stay away. Polonius specifically says, like, he's a prince out of thy star. There's no way that you could ever be with him. Put it out of your head. And then at her funeral, Gertrude says, like, I hope you would have been my Hamlet's wife. So who are we supposed to believe about the relationship? Because we're told 
many conflicting things and we don't ever get to see them alone talking about what's going on. We don't. Um, And, And really only Ophelia knows and she doesn't say. Yeah, you have given them, you've given the audience in your play a chance to see what Ophelia and Hamlet look like when they're together. That we see, we only see the dysfunctional relationship in Shakespeare's play, and we see what could have been in yours. Hello, as far as I know, I'm Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSE the RSE? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second, you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. Shakespeare's birthday is coming up on April 23rd, so now would be the perfect time to share the love with the Shakespearean in your life. Pop-Up Shakespeare is on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Kate Pitt, the dramaturg for our latest show, Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, which one of these days will be able to start performing again. You weren't able to be in the rehearsal room with us, unfortunately, but you 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 read every draft of of Hamlet's Big Adventure and weighed in and gave us incredibly valuable insight into you know some of the, the the different word choices that like that Hamlet that that Shakespeare used, um, like this this idea that maybe is Hamlet thirty is he fat? Right. What is that from? Uh, the, in the duel, Hamlet uh, Gertrude goes to wipe Hamlet's brow and says he's fat and scant of breath, and there's a whole bunch of their PhD theses by the dozen written on what that means in context. Um, is he actually fat? What is the meaning of that word? Um, those kind of questions. Right. Uh, interesting. Well, and, and, and in, in the quarto, um, Claudius is described, is it bloat? Is it blunt? Yes. Is he fat? Yeah. Is he direct? I mean, some of the word choices just between, the word discrepancies just between the quarto and the folio are instructive and confusing. Yes. Um, so in terms of my dramaturgical process, uh, reading reading the script, finding out what, what you were looking for um, was incredibly fun. Um, I The random skill of being able to read some words and saying that they sound like some other words um, is not one that I get to deploy very often. So it was really fun to read through the script and be like, well, you have this line of like, get your lips away from him, which sounds like take or take those lips away in measure for measure. Hey, if you want to put a fun random Shakespeare quote in there, here's that. Um, So that was fun uh, to get to find the Shakespeare. Uh, And then noticing things like you're using the here versus you and uh, what that means about the various characters. Um, But I think the most interesting conversations we had were about sort of thematically Polonius and Ophelia. And there's, there's, there were sort of little textual things we talked about, um, but sort of the overarching what that relationship looked like um, and how that was interpreted, I think, was 
probably the most interesting part of the process because it sounds like that relationship for you guys as you were developing the play changed. Well, yes, because it became clear that the the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia is the driving, it's the it's it's the fundamental thing that defines who they are. This young love, um, and they both have interactions with their parents, you know, that are that are fundamental to who they become. Um, and if we talked about this, I think in the past, is that in Hamlet's Big Adventure, Hamlet's tale is more like Hal, is in that he is torn between two opposing father figures: his father, the king, and Yorick, the jester. And Ophelia's story in Hamlet's Big Adventure is more akin to Hamlet's story in the tragedy in that, you know, she loses a parent who dies and reappears as a ghost and it gives her instructions that she must follow. Yes. And and knowing what we know for audiences coming in, knowing Hamlet, seeing how she reacts to her mother's death in this play and how that contrasts to how she reacts to her father's death in Hamlet is really interesting. Yes. One feeds, the, one feeds the other and goes to, goes a little way towards explaining maybe a little bit why madness takes root. Yes. And yeah, that she's behaving strangely. She's talking to the air and that that's confusing to Hamlet. Yeah. Um, and then we know that we're going to see him go through the same thing. So all the resonances that you've put in of seeing characters in various situations um even even the parallel of of in the play uh ophelia's mother disappearing um and then her returning in like weird clothes yeah but like that was that was a parallel um trying i'm trying so hard to avoid spoilers um that there there are multiple parallels that you put in your play that happen exactly in hamlet's big adventure um but because it is a comedy the outcome is very different yes thank goodness um, Thank goodness. Yeah, and in fact, we've added a we, we we've added a moment towards the end of Hamlet's Big Adventure. The last time we see Ophelia, we just there's just this moment of her on stage yelling, kind of saying to herself, "No!" And that's the last time we see her. And the next time we see her, we, she'll be in Hamlet, silent. Um, yeah. And it's really, if you think about that, it's a very small moment in Hamlet's Big Adventure. But if you if you if you see it and you think about it, you go, oh, my God, that poor girl. Absolutely. Um, and I, I love at the end of your play. I mean, it's, it's hard because we're told at the beginning of Hamlet that Hamlet's on his way back from Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. And the end of your play, he's still he's still there, even though the king is going to go take a nap. Right. Um, he's still heading. But I love he's still idea. planning on heading. He's still heading. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but I but I love the idea that this could, in a way, I mean, you really want to do this in rep with Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and just do all three, um, and have the Tom Stoppard and the Muppet Babies and the original just in one big, um, moosh. And I think the insight we get into the characters of particularly Yorick. Mm is wonderful and who that guy is because we're told that he has such an intense relationship with young Hamlet. Yeah. But we never get to see it. We just see his skull. And so to literally like remember to put like that body back together and put it on stage um, and put flesh on that skull. I think you said on one, one of the podcasts of like watching Hamlet after working on this show, all of a sudden that moment meant so much more because you've been living with that character. Yeah. That was a person now. 
Yeah, that was a person. And, and Hamlet's big adventure suggests that Yorick didn't die 30 years ago. But more recently to the events of Hamlet, of Hamlet um, but again, that's supported by the text as well, because he says, my gorge rises at the smell of these bones. Um, right. Well, that wouldn't, you, that wouldn't if those, these are 30-year-old bones. It would only if the flesh was sort of still clinging to the bones. You know, huh. so yeah, that argues, you know, in favor that Yorick is alive much, much closer to the events of Hamlet, the tragedy, than I think people suggest. I mean, this is our thing. The, the Undertaker, he's the one, the gravedigger who says oh, it's been 30 years since everybody died. He's an unreliable narrator at best. <laughs> he he has been drinking quite a bit. He's been drinking um, quite a lot. Yes, and thirty and the number thirty seems to be the go to. <laughs> yes, yes. Any any fool can tell that. I mean, the image he sets up is so great. If you wanted to do like the action movie prequel of Hamlet, um, where there's it's very, it's very Star Trekky. There's like the battle going on of like the two old Hamlets and old Fort and Bross and the Jerry Bruckheimer version, like on the ice in single combat while you like cut to Gertrude and labor with young Hamlet. Like there's an amazing action yeah. movie prequel of Hamlet to be done oh, for um, sure. of, of that story of like 30 years ago, the battle going on um, while Hamlet's being born. But yes, uh, he's, he's definitely unreliable and it means that people can write a lot about how old he is forever and ever and ever. And right. We will. Yes. But, um, but how old do you think he is? Well, we think he's a teenager. I mean, I, I, I have always thought that he's a, he's, a, he's a teen or a college student at the oldest. You know, mm. he's, 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 he talks about being a student. He has, he's preoccupied with his parents in a kind of an adolescent way. Um, that's the stuff that has always rung most true to me about um, Hamlet and and also you know students know ev students know everything teenagers know everything they don't need anything explained to them by their parents and they agonize over everything um, so it all feels very adolescent to me interesting yeah. I mean definitely the way he treats Gertrude um, is very petulant teenager yeah well and he's struggling with his own sexual issues you know, and he's on, he's frustrated and he's attracted and all the Oedipal stuff. I mean, I don't think it's an Oedipal nightmare. Sorry, Ernest Jones, but. <laughs> yes. But yeah, but that's interesting. And part of what's great about the play is that one can make an argument for him being anywhere from a teenager to, I mean, Paul Giamatti played him just a couple of years ago. Ah. Um Yes. Uh, so he he can be as old as, as one would like. And it's interesting because I think that the text, because we're given times and ages by an unreliable narrator, um, the play can be flexible enough to accommodate different ages. Um, and, and yes, all the all this wonderful text that Shakespeare has given us that that we regard as 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 sacred and definitive and canon um I, I know I know as a playwright is probably just 
there to justify the size and the age of the actors he originally wrote for. So Hamlet's age is probably flexible and his weight is flexible because Burbage's, Richard Burbage's weight and age were, were things that we had to work around. Absolutely. And, and having played, played Burbage, being the expert in this, um, ah. yeah, the, the idea that, but also what an incredible man he must have been to have that and Othello and Lear. I mean, what kind of single human being? Yes, Could exactly. Those rules have been written on. I mean, you it, in you just want to take the man out for a drink or five. Or five, yes, and and yeah, hang on to your hat. There's no way you're going to keep up with him. Yeah, there's. I mean, Shakespeare couldn't have written these amazing roles without amazing actors to play them. Yes, and and the idea that looking at Gertrude or his his older women like Cleopatra, but also Gertrude because she's clearly older. The idea that that would have been played by a young teen boy. And also, how amazing was that kid? Yes. Yes. Going up against Burbage. I mean, a 14-year-old going up against Burbage, the leader of the pack, in the closet seat, where they're both incredibly strong, um, must have been utterly terrifying, but also incredible. Well, in this book that I read about the best actors in the world, which is a chronicle of... um, the, a chronicle of Shakespeare's company and what we know and what we think we know about them based on casting lists and based on the uh, a pay, payroll lists um, suggest, uh, suggests that um, the, the boy who played Cleopatra, say, or any of the women opposite any of the leading men played by Richard Burbage was probably Richard Burbage's apprentice. You know, literally the apprentice to Burbage because they spent all that time together and could work together all this time. And so this boy was studying under one of the greatest actors ever. That's a whole play in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, but exactly. I feel like it's so easy to forget that Shakespeare was often writing for specific, like the people he had. Mm-hmm. Um, like who was doing Ophelia? That must have been super interesting. Um or they're like, okay, we got a short, dark-haired one and a tall blonde. Great. Rosalind, <laughs> Celia, Hermia, Helen. Okay, great. Yeah. Do that. Um, sorted. Yeah, they did that. He was sorted. Done. Um, it'll look funny on stage. Uh, yeah, they did that. He's writing for specific people, which is also, again, what you're doing, that you are writing for yourselves. Yeah. Um, so well, I was it- interested in what you said in the last podcast, because I hadn't known that you were originally planning to play a different part than you currently are. Correct. I was. I, I just assumed I would play Hamlet because I play Hamlet in um, both Long Lost Shakes and The Complete Works. And we just, I, so I just, I, I kind of without thinking about it, just, well, okay, I'll play Hamlet and we'll figure everything else out. And then, but then as I wrote this song for Hamlet and it became clear that it sounded better on a guitar that I don't play rather than a ukulele, which I do play. We went, oh, no, we've got to get somebody, you know, who plays the guitar and also who looks younger than me. Um, you know, that we, you want somebody with a boyish quality and my bass tones this morning, notwithstanding. I don't really have a boyish quality. Oh, come now. <laughs> oh, it, it's eternal. <laughs> but, that's, but that's exactly what you're doing. You, you wrote the play to suit your strengths. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's why it was another reason why we were so excited about doing the play because we wanted to get into Yorick. 
we wanted to yes. talk about Yorick, who is a clown and a fool, which is, I mean, Reed Martin is a literal clown and we're all fools. Um, you know, so uh, uh, that idea, and we all love theater. And one of the journeys, again, that's again that uh, that um, adds to the poignancy of Yorick, is that we see him getting his mojo back in Hamlet's Big Adventure. We see him as a guy who used to be a touring actor who gave it up because it was an unstable line of work, and so he became he took a day job, which is to be the fool, the jester, to a king. Um, and it's maybe not the most rewarding work he's ever had. And in teaching Hamlet and Ophelia about theater and putting on a show, he gets his mojo back. Yes. And, and that we see the, the lineage again. I don't know if it's a spoiler, but I love what you've put in where we know who Yorick was trained by. Yes. Yeah. And that in, in the same way that there's sort of the legacy of, um, I think like Gilgood could was trained by this person, and, and there's sort of a legacy of actors who theoretically go back to Shakespeare and Burbage. Yeah, this person being trained by this person being trained by this person. That you've put that into the play of York was trained by this person, and now he's training Hamlet. Um, and and sort of the way that that tradition can keep going down. Yes, and it's not too spoilery to say that we say that York is inspired by the great Sir Thomas of Cooper which our UK listeners, some of them, will, will recognize the name Tommy Cooper as a very famous British comedian, music hall comedian, and, and kind of a magician comedian as well. Uh, and so our Yorick is inspired by Tommy Cooper in many ways, and if people know Tommy Cooper, they can maybe figure out the spoiler there. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, we're inspired by, you know, we, not only Yorick is inspired by people, but Reed and I are inspired by the clowns and actors and playwrights who came before us. Yes. And that you've, you've put that legacy into the play, I think is a wonderful tribute. I, I didn't know who Sir Tom of Cooper was. Um, so it was not a spoiler when I read it, but it's, I think it's really lovely to put that in that we're learning everyone's backstory, not only the characters, but also yours. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your backstory via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Kate Pitt on Twitter too at Kate Pitt. Thanks, as always, to both clown and fool Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Susan Brown. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Weird Al Yankovic for adding some much-needed zazz to this conversation. And special thanks to Kate Pitt for both the conversation and the idea to add said zazz. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 747-2241sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Well, we've talked for over a half an hour, and this is either going to be the longest, most boring podcast, or two of the shortest, most boring podcasts. So thank you, Kate, for this deep dive. 
My pleasure. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.